Well, I don't know if you knew this or not, but this is April Fool's Day. It is the first time in 62 years that Easter has fallen on April Fool's Day. The last time it happened was in 1956. That was a really good year. Me and my car were born that year. Now, due to the quirks in the Gregorian calendar, Easter changes, has about a six-week span from late uh, March to late April. The next uh, time that uh, April Fool's Day and Easter coincide will be 2029, and then again in 2040. And then after that, it won't be the rest of this century. So it's a very unique day. People have uh, wondered about the origin of Fool's Day. I checked Wikipedia to find out, and they don't really have an idea either. Some say it's a Dutch tradition. Um, you know those Dutch people. They, they like playing uh, tricks on each other, and they would play these good-hearted uh, pranks on each other on the first day of April, and others feel like it came when the uh, whatever calendar changed to the Gregorian calendar, and they were the more sophisticated people who, and the educated who adopted the new calendar, and the old people were in the old calendar, and so they called them fools and April fools. Well, I'm not sure really uh, the origin of uh, April Fool's Day, but one thing I would question this morning, and that is this, what if this really would be the greatest fool's day of all, that we were counting on a salvation that really didn't exist. I mean, we're just, it's just a fairy tale, and this whole story about Jesus is a good story and all that, but really all of this is just a big fairy tale. Now, even the most unbiased of secular historians will certainly admit that Jesus existed. There are just too many sources. However, to acknowledge that uh, he was put to death on the cross, less. But there is virtually no historians that would say with certainty, unless they're believers, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, why is it that that particular thing about this event why is it that that is discounted? Well, because the resurrection is the single thing in the life of Christ that separates him from anybody else who has ever lived, any leader, any teacher, any great person in the past. And it is the one thing that separates Christianity from all the faiths in the world. There is no doctrine so vital as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is absolutely foremost in our belief of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ is still dead, then we are truly the biggest April fools of all. The Apostle Paul, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave us Scripture, many epistles. One of them was to a church in Corinth. And in the 15th chapter that's been designated by the translators, he began to write on this subject of the resurrection and gave a full treaty about it. 
And I, this morning, hope to be able to look at that together with you. Without Easter, we're history. We're the biggest fools of all. Let's all bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for this uh, beautiful Easter Sunday. Thank you for this wonderful crowd that's here. Oh, God, may this be a day of day, an Easter to remember for each in here. In Christ's name, amen. Let's go to the first chapter of, or excuse me, the first book of Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Let me give you just a little bit of setting about the Greek mindset. You know, each mindset is different. The Western world mindset's a little different from a third world country. The Greek culture did not believe in the resurrection of anyone. The Greek culture were a very educated group. Unlike some of the other cultures that existed in that day, they prided themselves on their education. They weren't averse to hearing philosophies. When Paul was in Athens, he preached. And he, as he was preaching there on Mars Hill, people looked at him and kind of wondered what he was saying and kind of different doctrine. But when Paul came to the part, and you read this story in Acts chapter 17, but when Paul came to the part where he said, and Jesus then rose from the dead. The Bible records that the people, many of them, actually even laughed. They mocked Paul. And as soon as he talked about the resurrection, they turned him off. The fact is, Paul's premise in all of 1 Corinthians 15 is simply this. If there is no resurrection, there can be no salvation because a dead Savior can't save anybody. It's not a truth that saves me. It's not a concept that saves me. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, last week we uh, talked about this, and the Apostle Paul mentioned that there would be some absurdities that would happen if Christ didn't raise from the dead, and we looked at seven of those. Today, what the resurrection does, we're going to take the next passage in 1 Corinthians 15, and what the resurrection does for our past and what it does for our present And hallelujah, what it does for our future. All right, first of all, let's go to verse 20, and we'll find the resurrection is death's ruin. Verse number 20. In fact, let's read verse 20, 21, and 22 together, if you would, out loud. Ready, begin. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, we don't like to think about it, and maybe this may seem like an untimely truth uh, on uh, Easter, uh, Easter Sunday. But the fact is, all people die. Every second, every tick on the clock somewhere, some person in some part of the world dies. And often, strangely, they die in unusual ways. I saw an article that pretty long about unusual deaths throughout history. I listed just a few of them, and I think you will be amazed as I was. In 620 B.C., Draco, a Greek lawmaker was smothered to death by coats. 
showered upon him by appreciative citizens. In 455 B.C., Isaculus, I guess that's right, the Athenian author of tragedies, and you're not, you're not going to believe this, he was killed by a tortoise, dropped by an eagle that had mistaken his bald head for a rock suitable of shattering the shell. That's just not right right there, I'm going to tell you that. I didn't want to say it, but in 567 A.D., Hans Steninger, German guy, a Burgermeister, don't know what that is, he died when he broke his neck by tripping over his own beard. He kept it rolled up in a leather pouch, 400, or excuse me, 400, four and a half feet long beard, tripped on it. Crazy. In 1884, Alan Pinkerton, founder of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, tripped on the pavement, severely bit his tongue. It became infected, gangrenous, and he died. More modern age, 1979, John Bowen, a 20-year-old, was at Shea Stadium when a 40-pound model plane crashed into the stands and killed him. In 2001, Peter Robinson in Colorado slipped on the ice and went face down and drowned in his cat's water bowl. Can you imagine drowning in your cat's water bowl? In 2010, Jim Hesselden, who founded Segway, died riding a Segway off a cliff. I shouldn't laugh about that, but anyway. In 2013, Wahoo D'Souza, 45, was crushed by a cow falling through the roof of his house in Brazil. The cow was unharmed. <laughs> Killed Waho, though. In 2018, you may, this was just a few weeks ago, Elaine Hertzberg, 49-year-old woman, was walking in Tempe, Arizona, and was hit and killed by a self-driving car by Uber. And I read this a few weeks ago and was just amazed in the UK, Birmingham, UK, Atif Rafiq, 24 years old, was in a theater in one of those um, automatic recliner type theater chairs, lost his phone, stuck his head down between the seat and the back looking for his phone, then accidentally hit the thing and killed him. Unbelievable. Now, there are many unusual deaths. That's the point. Millions and billions die what we would say normal deaths. But thank God, because of the resurrection, death has been ruined. It's gone. Jesus spoiled the devil's party, and death no longer has a hold on God's people. How is that possible? Here's Paul building this great truth because he is the first fruits. Look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. In the Old Testament, before a harvest, the minister, a priest as they're called in the Old Testament, not what we would think of as a Catholic priest, just a minister, preacher, pastor, he would go out into the field and he would take a, a bunch of ripened grain, whatever the type of grain it would be, he would then take it to the temple and there he would wave it before the Lord, sometimes called a wave offering. Now, the wave offering was, as you might imagine, just think of it symbolically. So he goes out and grabs this little bunch of wheat, comes into the church, and he waves it before the Lord. 
And it was both a prophecy and a promise. He was saying, oh God, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the promise that you take care of your people and we look forward. It was a prophecy. We look forward to you blessing the harvest with so much. And so it was both a prophecy and a promise. Now here, Paul said, you know the way of offering. Paul being raised as a very strict Jew, often pulled these illustrations into his preaching. He said, think about this, the wave offering. You remember the first fruits offering? He said, think about it. Jesus is our first fruits. That means because he came out of the grave, we're going to come out of the grave because God will bless the harvest. God blesses that first fruits. When Pauline and I had the privilege of going to the South Pacific last year and visiting the very remote and backward island of Vanuatu, we discovered people that were very primitive. In fact, 70% of the population lives still in the jungle. Very few of them have electricity of any. They live much part like they did thousands of years ago. You might think that because they're very primitive that they're not very smart. I'm telling you what, they are, I think they're the smartest people I've ever met. They live and are able to exist in a way that we could never even imagine. And it's a funny thing when you think about the atheist and the educated group. They'll look at that and they will kind of, you know, look down their nose at these primitives and people and think, you know, they're not very um, smart. But one thing we've discovered, and every place I've ever gone, I've asked our missionary in Thailand the same thing, and that is, I've asked them both the question, I'd heard the statement that there are no atheists in a jungle. He said, that's true. You know, no matter where anybody ever finds some remote jungle civilization, did you know that when they find them, there's never an atheist? The point being, you have, to be, you have to become an educated fool to become an atheist. Because if you, if you just observe nature and around... Now, they may not believe on the true God, but they know there's a God. They have a sense that there's a God. And they, they know it because they see birth and they see death. And they even embrace death. The funny thing about the educated group, they don't embrace death. In fact, they often run from death. In fact, don't want you to even mention death and try to act as though death's not even going to come. Folks, they're just fooling themselves. You talk about people who are uneducated, somebody who just doesn't want to think about death. You know, for the believer, however, death is a, something that's been ruined by the devil, by Jesus. He came along and he took death out of the hands of the devil. While it's a decided fact, it is a defeated foe. Three days after Jesus was in that grave, he rose from the dead. And when he rose, I always love this time of the year because we read different parts of the gospel story or sometimes I'll see it on some play or something. And the scripture says that Jesus folded the napkin. Remember the disciples came into the tomb and they walked in there and they saw, and very clearly it says the grave cloths were there and it says the napkin was folded. His face cloth was folded. I even preached a message one time called the folded napkin. And what was that all about? Why did scripture very clearly say there was this, there was this, and then there was a folded napkin? I think they're trying to show us something that Jesus wasn't whisked away by a bunch of crazy, crazed uh, followers. He 
got up. He brushed himself off. The grave clothes came off. He folded them up. He folded the napkin and laid it there. Folks, how did you leave your room this morning? (laughs) Jesus, he was in perfect control. I mean, there was no rush. There was no hurry. He just took care of business. That's because he had conquered death. He was not only the first fruits, but according to these verses, he is the last Adam. Look at verse 22. For in Adam all die. We know that's for sure. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man after his own order. Christ is the first fruit afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. Now here he makes a parallel truth. Everybody knows that through the sin of Adam and Eve, the human gene pool was forever tainted. Because of their sin, God said, if you sin, you will die. Now, they didn't die physically at that moment, but the, the death sentence was placed into the body. Before that time, people would live for just really an indefinite amount of time. But at that point, then the death sentence came upon the body, but the spiritual death happened. Folks, the human gene pool has absolutely been tainted by the sin of Adam and Eve. Many people today are doing these DNA testing. Maybe you've done that DNA testing. You'd set some of your saliva or your blood, and you can send it to them, and they can find out maybe your uh, ethnic origin. It's actually uh, holding a lot of surprises for people. They didn't realize where their background was like. Uh, And so uh, I guess I read recently that they did some DNA testing on Hitler's DNA. Only find out he was like one-third Jewish or something. But uh, my sister had her DNA uh, tested, and uh, there was no surprise there. Although I did find out at 1% Jewish and uh, 60% Scotch-Irish, which we pretty much knew that was going to be. Someone once said about families, they're like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts. And uh, But the fact is, folks, our DNA, even there's a lot of nuts in our DNA. It is because we have a sin nature. But in the same manner that sin came into the race of humans, so salvation came through the merit and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because anybody who gets saved gets new DNA, spiritual DNA. That's what it says in the book of Titus. It says we are regenerated. Have you ever looked at that word? Regenerated. That's exactly what it means. We've been, we have new genes. <laughs> Hallelujah. A person that gets born again gets new spiritual genes. We become born of God. People say, well, all God's children. Well, that sounds good and it sounds like a good gospel song or a good old, uh, some kind of southern country song, but the fact is we're not all God's children. Jesus looked at the people there, and he looked at this one crowd that was a little tough, and he said, I'll tell you one thing, you're either of God or you're of the devil. There's only two groups. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either part of Christ or you're not. And if you're part of Christ, if you have accepted Christ, then you have been made, you have been given a new hope. You have new genes in you. The first Adam took, spoiled it. 
the second Adam, as he's called in Romans 5, the second Adam is the one who brought back new life, eternal life. In theology, this is the, known as the doctrine of two Adams. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus reversed everything and more that Adam and Eve brought into this world. That's the doctrine of the second Adam. He, whatever Adam did, and that's what Paul is pointing out here, yes, Adam spoiled it all, (laughs) but hallelujah, Jesus made an opportunity for us to go to heaven. I read a story this week of climbers who were climbing the Matterhorn. I've always been amazed by people who like to climb. I can't imagine doing it. I don't like doing it, but it fascinates me. People that climb up the side of mountains and El Capitan over here, I said, unbelievable. There were four climbers on the Matterhorn. The Matterhorn is a huge, very tall um, in the Alps, a mountain in the Alps. There are four of them a lead guide, a tourist, another mountain climber, and another tourist. All of them were given instructions how to climb this very dangerous mountain. They were all tethered together, and they went up. One of them lost his grip, the last one, and he fell over the precipice. When he fell, he drug the guide just above him also off the edge. When he went over, the tourist, the second one, was also drug over the edge. And then finally, the lead guide, when he felt the tug just come against him, he took the anchors that were there and he cinched them down. He took his ice, uh, his feet with those spikes on them. He took his axe and with all everything he had, he hung on for your dear life. He had three people that were basically dangling and he, they were able to regain their footing, and they were able to finish their journey. Now, when I read that story, I thought of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Adam was that first man that fell, and the second man fell, and the third man, and all along. But we have been all tethered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he hung on, we can go to heaven, and we can go to heaven. He brought us with him. He tethered us to heaven, and that's what happens when a person gets born again. That's what God is saying. Yes, the devil messed up everything, but Jesus solved everything, and he messed up the devil's plan. He ruined the devil's plan. Someone might ask me, Pastor, do you believe that the, I mean, what would you be on the resurrection, 50-50? Maybe 90% sure? No. 100% sure? I looked it up and thought, what is the most, what is the biggest number that there could be? And I learned, I'm not sure why it's called this number, but the biggest number is known as a Googleplex. I'm sure Google had something to do with that, but the largest number is a one followed by a hundred zeros. What uh, percent sure are you about the resurrection? I am Googleplex sure. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not 110% sure. I am Googleplex sure. The fact is there are far more sources for Jesus of Nazareth for than many historical figures in the first century. We have at least 18 sources, external sources, in addition to the Bible, of Jesus of Nazareth. Twelve of them are secular in nature. 
In fact, there is more evidence that Jesus existed. There is more historical evidence than that Julius Caesar existed. Does anybody doubt that Julius Caesar existed? No, of course not. You know, when I read accounts of first century Christians, we are, I'm always amazed at their faith. They understood death, and they recognized that death had been conquered. One author, one first century author wrote about the Christians that he observed, quote, all the disciples of Christ despise death. They trample on it as something dead, treated as nothing, prefer to die rather than deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die, they do not perish, but live and become incorruptible through the resurrection. Even children eagerly want to die. The sense in the early church was, you're going to martyr me? Yes. I'm going to go see Jesus. I'm going to be with God. There was this sense of the fact of a resurrection was so permeating the church. The resurrection is death's ruin, for sure. Number two, the the resurrection is life's release. It is the way out of this life. And I will tell you, as much as I love living and as much as I enjoy life, the fact is, there are times when I can honestly say, I'm ready. I'm just ready to go see Jesus. I'm ready. So much pain, so much heartache. Verse 23, let's look at it. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards, they that are Christ's at His coming. Say those last three words with me, please. At His coming. At His coming. We are released from life through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is known as the rapture. It is the second coming of Christ. Paul elaborates on that further in this chapter. Look at verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The word sleep here is the word for death, for a child of God, because for a believer, they may lay down, but they get back up. Last night, I laid down. Boy, did I lay down. I was so tired. Man, I was just worn out. We'd had a little family Easter party, and it seemed like from the beginning of the day till the end, I, we was working or studying. Man, I was so tired. But hallelujah, I woke up this morning, and I'm still tired. No, I woke up this morning, and I'm ready to go because why? He, I, I woke up. I'm glad I woke up. The fact is, when we lay down in that grave, we're going out of that grave. Can you imagine the glory and the excitement of that day when the rapture comes? Man, I'm telling you what, I can't, I I just hope I'm a part of that rapture generation. And I tell you what, when you look at the things that are going on in this world right now, I want to tell you something, I believe I am part of that generation, but I can't wait. Can you imagine what it's going to be like, people driving down the road and all of a sudden they look over there and the driver's gone or they look over there and the passenger's gone, people flying in the airplane, Pilot's already gone. Boy, I'm telling you what, I mean, it's just going to be unbelievable. The rapture, the coming of Christ is a release from this life. It is a way out of everything that's going on. That's why Jesus said, in such an hour as you think not, be ready. 
Last week, I believe I mentioned, if I didn't, I want to mention it this morning, one of our most precious families, John and Tiffany Swain. He's a Stockton police officer. They have a very beautiful, large family. They found out four months ago that God had blessed them with another child. She was pregnant. And then just two weeks ago, the very sad news came that the baby had died in the womb. Tiffany was faced with the, what should we do during this last dramatic production? She was one of the lead uh, characters there. She had a lead part singing. Because of situation, they weren't able to take care of anything during that time. And so they, she said, let's carry on. And so while she was up here singing, she had a dead baby in her womb, little Titus. And while the body was dead, Titus was in heaven. And she carried on. She just carried on serving God and never said a word. No, but we didn't announce it. We didn't want to, you know, uh, we wanted to make sure that God got all the glory through what was going on. But yesterday we had a little uh, service for Titus here at the service in the church back in the uh, prayer for us there. Pastor Luke uh, Great little message, and Ryan sang, and then at the end, John and Tiffany took white balloons, helium-filled balloons with a little message, and all the children walked out, and they let the balloons go. And, you know, that beautiful little ceremony and the whole time was just a sweet and precious time. But, you know, John and Tiffany both know that Titus is just waiting for them. They get to have their children here. They get to be with them here. But soon, they'll get to see Titus. And if the rapture comes, we're all just going to go together. What's going to be unbelievable? Are you ready? Life is, release is the rapture of Jesus Christ. Be ready. Are you ready for his return? A young woman was expecting a date. She was all dressed up, waiting patiently. However, time came, went by, and her date was an hour late. By that time, she figured she'd been stood up, so she took off her makeup, put on her pajamas, gathered all the junk food in the house, sat down to watch the TV with her dog. And just as her favorite show was coming on, the doorbell rang. She opened it up, and it was her date. He stared at her wide-eyed and said, I'm two hours late and you're still not ready? (laughs) About that time, she killed him. And uh, be ready. Be ready. The resurrection is death's ruin. It is life's release. And hallelujah, it is eternity's reign. The resurrection proves the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you who the mayor of Lodi is, do you know? Does anybody know who the mayor of Lodi is? About three people, okay. I actually don't even know, but uh, who's the mayor of Stockton? Anybody know who the mayor of Stockton? A few more people know, okay. Who's our congressman, do you know? Anybody know our assemblyman? (laughs) Who knows who's president, okay? All right, there you go. Man, this is a dumb crowd here this morning. uh, (laughs) But... Do you know, the truth is, do you know who the real mayor of Lodi is? 
You want to know who the real mayor of Stockton is? You want to know who really our congressman is? You want to know really who is the president of the United States? The Bible says very clearly, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the true one who is the president. He is the true one who is leader, as the Bible says, he is Lord. That's what it says in verse 24. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father. The end is coming. And the Bible says all things will be resolved when Jesus Christ gives everything to Father God. A dead prophet can't resolve anything. And this verse very clearly says that Jesus delivers up to God the Father everything. It's all settled because of Jesus. I saw a handyman's truck the other day. It said, I fix anything. And I'm not sure that that's the case. It probably, he probably is willing to try to fix anything. But I'll tell you somebody who can fix anything, and that's Jesus. And that handyman might be able to fix a, you know, a drippy sink and a faucet, but he can't fix a broken heart. But I'll tell you somebody who can fix a broken heart this morning. It is Jesus. Jesus fixes everything, and that's what he says in this verse. It says, in the end, the end comes, and he delivers up everything. Everything's fixed. Everything's taken care of. Look at, it says, he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. Jesus will put an end to all the ruling parties of the world. For right now, God has granted to Satan and to leaders and rulers of this world a measure of leadership, but it's all temporary. Jesus is going to take his rightful place. During the millennium, Jesus rules and reigns on this earth. It is known as the kingdom reign. He's coming. God wins. People say, well, I'm so worried. Hey, just tell yourself, God wins. You know, I mean, it's just temporary. All the stuff that goes on, and I mean, everybody's all upset and worried and angry. Folks, God wins. God wins. And I, I believe we ought to be angry at sin and, and injustice, and I think we ought to try to make a stand. But the fact is, God wins. God wins. And that's what it says here in this verse, that he is going to put down all rule. He's going to put down all authority. It doesn't make any difference who's in the White House or the whatever house. Verse 25, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. When Jesus rose from the grave, he put all enemies under his feet. He, put, he set in motion an unbreakable chain of events. Once that thing was put in motion, you can't stop it. Sometimes I'll sign little things that say, this is irrevocable. You know, and every time I see those words, I think, man, I better, am I sure I want to sign this? This is irrevocable. It's an irrevocable statement. Jesus made an irrevocable uh, statement, and he made things put into place, and it cannot be broken. And that's what it says here. Because of the resurrection, an irrevocable, unbreakable chain of events began, and it's going to finish. It's like a washing machine. Washing machine. <laughs> I didn't say wash. And uh, you heard different, I'm sure. But anyway... My beautiful wife, she's really good at keeping the laundry going, and, and uh, 
Well, the other day I had a pink shirt, I mean a, a, a t-shirt, and she thought it would look better pink. I mean, she made that thing pink. I'm just so grateful for her. But um, <laughs> she is so good at doing all the laundry. I, she's going to be mad at me now, boy, I tell you for sure. But uh, no, she is. She really takes care of me. But boy, once you start that wash machine, she'll say it's on the spin cycle. Oh, that's why the, dan- the house is dancing. It's on the spin cycle. And uh, even my clothes dance. I know you know I know how to get down, but... And, uh, even my clothes dance in the washing machine, and that's what happens. It starts on that wash cycle, then it goes to the rinse cycle, then it goes to the spin cycle. Did I get that right? And uh, then it goes to the whatever cycle, and then they jump out of that thing, and they crawl over there into the dryer, I think. That's how it happens. And, uh, but that's a cycle, and that's, it's started. It's going to finish. No one's going to stop that cycle. Jesus set in motion. Because of the resurrection and the cycle has been started and we're not going to, it's not going to end until we're all washed and dried and sitting in heaven. Hallelujah. And all pink. Verse 26. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. The Bible says that when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, he wept. The shortest verse in the King James Bible is Jesus wept, John 11. People have wondered why Jesus wept. I'm sure he wept because he was compassionate. But he wasn't weeping because Lazarus was dead. Oh, my goodness, if I had gotten here earlier. Oh, my goodness, Lazarus is dead. We'll never see him again. That's not what he was weeping about. That's usually how we weep. We weep when someone dies. and We think we'll never see him again. <laughs> no. Jesus wept because of his compassionate people, but I think he wept because he was troubled at the enemy of death. And he was thinking, I'm sure I'm going to be so grateful when there's no more death, no more death, no more sickness. Won't that be a good day when there'll be no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, The Bible says he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's the reigning power of the Lord Jesus Christ. In my past, death, the devil has tried to destroy me, and he has brought death into this world. But Jesus' resurrection ruined death. His resurrection released us from life through the rapture, his coming. And then finally... My future is okay because the resurrection proves that Jesus can reign. If he can reign over all the kings of this world, he can surely reign in the future. Medical science does amazing things, and I'm so grateful for the medical world. They're very compassionate people, and many of them do things that are very helpful. And uh, through medicine and through different procedures, they're very helpful to us. But the medical world imagines it's, and they keep working towards eliminating all cancer and eliminating all disease and certainly eliminating even death. Now, I don't know how much they think that's going to really happen or not, but I've got good news. That's already been accomplished. It's already been taken care of. Did you know that every disease has already been healed? 
And all death has already been taken care of. It's all, it's, they're a little late if they're thinking that they're going to get rid of it all because Jesus has already put that in motion. He reigns. He rules. The Roman government in the first century was especially cruel in their treatment of their enemies. They developed things like the crucifixion. I read recently that they had another form of slow torture and it reminded me a little bit about what we're talking about today. They would take their enemies, strap the captive, joined face to face with a dead body. They would take a live captive, strap that person to a dead body. They would leave them until the horrible smells and vapors and fluids would literally choke the person to death, the living person to death. As I read that, I was disgusted like you are. But the fact is, if there's no resurrection, we are shackled to a dead corpse. It is our own sinfulness. But this Easter... We celebrate being freed from that. We are not strapped to our sin. We're not strapped to the death of the devil wants in our life. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ, we can breathe the sweet air of forgiveness. Thank God for what he gives us this morning. Would you bow your heads with me, please?